This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Daniel Elkins. He is a Green Beret. So all you guys that make fun of me for only having SEALs on the show, there you go. I got you a Green Beret. But he is the co-founder and chief executive director of SOAA or SOA or Special Operations Association of America. So uh, I just wanted to give him a special thank you because he did this while traveling. He was doing some spots for Fox News and for uh, Newsmax. And uh, it was just kind of an interesting period. And the reason why he was on all those different shows and he kind of squeezed us in is because we're at the one year anniversary of uh, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. So we certainly talk about that in the podcast. We also talk about why he decided to go the military route to begin with, kind of the difference between training and war. And this was a guy that I didn't know that until we were doing the interview. This guy was basically working as a pastor before he enlisted in the military at the age of 28. So very, very different route that most people take. But we do spend a lot of time talking about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. But then we got into some stuff that they do over there at SOA in terms of how they advocate. And he explained kind of what they do with that organization. But specific issues like operator syndrome, which a lot of you guys don't know about, but you need to know about. You know, what we're doing with our interpreter allies, burn pits. Uh, We kind of skipped over, you know, eligibility of benefits. But then we talked about rules of engagement and how the different definitions of rules of engagement affect our guys when they're downrange, trying to protect themselves, protect the local populace and their brothers. Others. And so very, very fun interview. I hope you guys enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get into it. Daniel Elkins, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hey, brother. Thanks for having me on. Well, dude, I already had to go, just go ahead and hit record because we were saying so many cool things offline and, and getting into a lot of different territory. So we kind of had to go ahead and spread it in. And I'm going to go ahead and say the joke before anyone else says the joke. Yes, guys, I know he's a ginger too. Yes, I know he has a red beard. No, we're not related, okay? It's super racist. It's super terrible and bigoted of you to assume that all gingers are related. Can can you at least co-sign that with me, Daniel? Oh, I was going to uh, preface the audience with that too. Like just because we look alike doesn't mean we're related. Come on, guys. What is wrong with you guys? Like we are not going to stand for such bigotry on this show, but we need to go ahead and get in and get everybody an idea of who you are. I talked about it a little bit in the intro, but anytime somebody decided to go the military route, that's always interesting to me. I grew up in Lawton, Fort Sill, so I was around military my entire life, but I went a different route, got a, fr- you know, a full ride to, to, to go to college, so I, d- I didn't really go the military route, and I kind of regret that to a degree, but you did. You decided to go the army route and then specifically special forces which is not to be confused with special operations which is the greater community but special forces that's green berets Damn. and different things like that i i know dude i used to say it wrong too and i lament those days but you know why go the military right uh military route and why do you want to be a green beret yeah well i mean it, it, at least you know that uh you know i'm not a navy seal so you know that's, <laughs> right. that's an important it's important delineation um you know uh when I, when I, when I talk to people more often than not, they're like, Oh, so is that kind of like a Navy SEAL in the army? And uh, more often than not, I'm like, yes. (laughs) Just, yeah, fine. Just leave me alone. (laughs) So uh, my dad is a a Patriot. He was drafted in Vietnam. So I grew up, you know, watching Rambo playing GI Joe. And I just always wanted to, to serve. Um, and then obviously the events of September 11th galvanized, um, uh, uh, a lot for myself and a whole generation that served uh, during the GWAT, uh, but it took me some time. I was I was kind of a late bloomer. <laughs> I uh, I did I lived a lot of life before going into the military, so I enlisted at 28. So I was kind of okay. uh, older for uh, enlisting, but I was right at that age where most people were going to selection. So um, I went to selection when I was 30. Um, and then, uh, the rest was, has been history. So I've been in for about 12 years now and, um, and, uh, I love it. And you're still, you're still active duty, right? No. So I'm not on active duty. Okay. I'm in the national guard. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, I, uh, as an M day soldier, it's kind of the acronym they say for, you know, not on, uh, any sort of set of orders, you know, the citizen soldier. And, and that, what, that's what gives me the ability to, to do this, to, 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 to help, uh, promote, and advocate on behalf of members of the special operations community. Okay. So is that the same? Cause we have a mutual friend in Tim Kennedy. That's where you and I met in DC when I was out there with Tim. So is that kind of the same, same thing that he's on? He's part of the national guard. So he's still deployable technically. 100%. Yeah. So, you know, uh, a lot of people know national guard, like one weekend a month, two weeks a year. Right. 
Um, it's a little bit more intense um, in uh, Army Special Forces in the Guard. Um, so year in and year out, I'm typically away for about 12 weeks uh, any given year, uh, sometimes more. And then like every three years, you know, typically a, a deployment somewhere. So yeah, Tim, uh, he, he, uh, he, he's in the same boat as me, uh, still in a, a deployable status. And um, I think we'll both uh, hang it up when they force us to because we both love it. Yeah, it makes sense. So one thing that I think would be helpful, because you made the SEAL comment at the beginning, and I get crap all the time for having so many SEALs on the shows. It's like, guys, I'll talk to just about anyone that writes a book, and apparently only SEALs know how to write. So I don't, it's like, what do you want from me? But I, I know that a lot of guys, you know, they look at SEALs and Green Berets and, you know, Rangers and Marine Recon and, you know, all these other different groups. They don't know how to delineate them. They just know that SEALs can swim, kind of. And so, like, right. what if you could kind of help us out, and you don't need to go down the list of everybody in the spec ops community necessarily, even though I know you know about them, but help most of us civvies understand kind of the differences in terms of where those, you know, you know, where those people would go to war versus this group, you know, how they're yeah. used, right? Absolutely. Well, you know, and, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, given uh, uh, a little bit of flack to, um, you know, our, our fellow SEALs in the community, you know, I, I do want to uh, say in, in a very legitimate way, you know, um, the whole diving thing and being underwater and not breathing, that's a big deal. Uh, so yeah. um, I am uh, blessed or maybe God hates me. I don't know, but I'm on a dive team. Um, you know, I joined the military because I didn't want to be underwater. Um, but the hardest, uh, most mentally uh, stressful things, uh, training iterations that I've done in the U.S. military are uh, the dive events um, uh, that uh, people do to train up to go to dive school. And um, there, there's a, a mental aspect of being underwater uh, when your body is telling you to go up and take a breath. And at that point in time, knowing that you are able to physiologically stay underwater the same amount of time that you've already been underwater before you actually pass out. And it's mm. all psychological. So usually, you know, most people run out of breath at around a minute, a minute 15, you know, physiologically, you could stay under for two minutes and 30 seconds before you actually pass out. So that's all mental. And, and that's something that I think is, um, is ingrained into the uh, SEAL community. Uh, it's just a different set of, of stress, but to answer your question, right? So, you know, there's a different tool, in uh, the toolbox for different things. You know, you have a flathead screwdriver, you have a Phillips, you might have, you know, a torque wrench, you might have a level, you know, a wood saw is different than, you know, a hacksaw. Um, and and kind of ha that's how I, I look at things, right? So you have, you know, different elements um, that uh, primarily uh, are relevant to missions, one being water, one being land. Um, and then you have kind of direct action. You know, that's what, you know, most people think of when they think the military or special operations. It's guys looking like they're on a SWAT team going into a room, you know, doing room clearing. And that's that's called direct action. And, and the SEAL community is really, really good at that in, in a water or maritime environment. And then, you know, we have uh, the Rangers, right? You know, and the Rangers are, I would say, are a raid force. They're an elite light infantry. Um, they don't operate in small teams. They still oper operate in, in platoon and company size elements. But they're really, really good at doing uh, that direct action, you know, uh, uh, on the ground. And, and that's all that they train. That's all that they do. Uh, Green Berets are a little different. You know, we're more a uh, force multiplication where we learn to shoot, move and communicate. But but really what makes us different and the the tool that we are in uh, in the American uh, arsenal, if you will, is this is this thing called force multiplication. Right. Mm. It's the ability to go in, identify a group that needs to be trained um, and then train them uh, to a standard and, and equip them to fight uh, for themselves are alongside of us, right? Mm. And uh, our pipeline is a little unique in regards to that because, you know, we learn a second language, right? So I never thought I could learn a second language, didn't think I was smart enough, but somehow the military managed to teach me French. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm grateful for that, right? So, you know, that's uh, that's kind of the, the slight difference, you know? And then, you know, what does the Air Force Special Operations do? Now, no one really knows. It's still kind of a mystery. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, so uh, typically, 
they attach, right? So they'll they'll come uh, to uh, SEAL units, they'll come to SF units, uh, Special Forces Green Beret units, they'll come to Ranger units um, as combat controllers, um, and uh, they handle aircraft, right? They speak pilot, and they also speak ground, right? And that's a, that's a huge capability, you know, close air support um, and the ability to call for fires. Uh, the uh, uh, Air Force Special Operations Community also has the PJs, right? And right. that is a dedicated unit um, the for you know aircraft or pilot retrieval or, or um, soldiers on the battlefield that are in um, you know uh, uh, really behind enemy lines to rescue them, provide medical aid, or you know set up uh, the ability to collect them up, and then kind of last you know rounding out the list, you've got you know. Force Recon, which kind of matriculated to uh, MARSOC, which is now the Raiders, right? And, um, you know, they're very young and nascent, and I, I still think that they're figuring out what their mission set uh, should be. Uh, they uh, come with a great sniper uh, capacity as well as uh, s- uh, surveillance and reconnaissance capacity um, and, and, and can provide, um, you know, actionable intel uh, for uh, target packages that get created and so on and so forth. So that's kind of rounds out the community. Well, I appreciate you going into all that detail because I know for most civilians, like when we hear about things on the news, you know, we don't know why Delta was sent in as opposed to the development group, right? Or vice versa or something like that. And again, I think it's helpful to look at it. It's like, okay, you have your toolbox, but you, you know, you shouldn't use your hammer as a screwdriver because that's not what it's made to do. And so I think that that's very helpful. Now let's talk just in general about going to war because in general, I guess uh, the United States has been at war for the last 20 years or so, essentially since 2001. Now you could look at it like, hey, we've had people deployed for decades and decades and decades. That's just kind of like old hat. But for you, just talk to me about the difference between being in you know, the Q course or, or going through boot camp or going through a workup or whatever it is that you're doing and then going to war because everything that you're doing supposedly leading up to that moment is to get you ready to be as lethal as possible. Again, I I've heard a lot of people say it, the U S military is meant to kill people and break stuff. And so it's like, you're, you're being trained throughout this entire period to go and do that, but there's gotta yeah. be a different ratcheting up. So talk about that a little bit. Well, and, and this is a really great segue into uh, a conversation that I think uh, most uh, uh, families in America don't have, right? And it's one of the reasons why I uh, uh, wanted to found the Special Operations Association of America, you know? So I'll, I'll weave in some personal experiences uh, in combat and some of those dilemmas, but under the, under the backdrop of, of, of this, which is in America... Uh, from a very early age, we are taught that violence is not how you solve issues, right? And we're taught to uh, de-escalate situations and and not use violence uh, to solve our problems. Then the military does an excellent job of systematically turning a person that has been wired to to, uh, uh, flight or, or freeze and getting them to be able to uh, be aggressive, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's very, very systematic. And then, you know, that gets fine-tuned when you go through any uh, of the special operations pipelines, you know, but the dilemma then that happens in combat, right? And, you know, we've had lots of conversations with, with our members from all uh, uh, tribes within uh, the special operations community ab- about this dilemma. So you go out on your first mission and whether it's close up or it's at distance, right? You you are violent. You mm-hmm. conduct what's violence of action against enemy combatants, right? And at first you're like, all right, I, I've done my job. Should I feel good about that? Should mm-hmm. I celebrate that? You know, it's it's unusual. It's, it's, it's not what you've been, you know, conditioned, but your training takes over and then you do it a couple more times. And then you, you kind of assimilate to this culture. Um, and, and that's when, you know, you're getting back from a mission and you're high-fiving your, you know, your buddy, or, or you start to take some, some pride in, in what you've done, you know, but the reality of that is, you know, you've just, uh, you know, you know, killed somebody. Right. Mm. And and now you're celebrating and and, and not to celebrate, you know, that it's great to kill someone, but you're celebrating that you've done a good job. You have been successful fighting an enemy. And then all the training, the years of training that you have 
um, to do that um, uh, uh, add up and then you transition back into society. And even if you're on active duty or you're in the National Guard, you go through a four or five day demobilization process and then you're back in general pop. Right. And I experienced, you know, um, some transitional issues. Right. You know, and, you know, I'll be the first to say that, you know, I, uh, you know, I haven't gone on hundreds of missions or anything like that. You know, I want to be very clear to the audience. Right. I, I am a combat vet from uh, Afghanistan. But, uh, you know, it, 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 war is kind of like luck of the draw, right? And I, I'm grateful that I've been able to serve my country and, and go on a, a few combat operations. Uh, but I don't have a, you know, 20 years of experience with nine combat deployments. But I, I think the, the issue really is, is the military is really good at turning it on. And then it, we just kind of are left to fend for ourselves when we turn it off. And, you know, that's a conversation that, that most people don't want to have uh, simply because it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it is uncomfortable. And also, I think there are a lot of conversations going on around dinner tables right now all across the country. As you know, and as most people know across the country right now, the U.S. military is having a hell of a time trying to hit all their recruitment numbers. And I think there are a lot of things that go into that. And perhaps right. we'll be able to get into that here in just a second. Well, actually, uh, let, let's kind of, I want to go back to something that you said, but I do, we're going to spend plenty of time on SOAA. I'm glad you mentioned it, but we'll get into that a little bit later. So talk to me a little bit uh, about the aspect of killing and the high-fiving because we've had guys on this show before that were in different, you know, special operations units and they did some pretty crazy and kinetic stuff overseas. But I've talked to some of them specifically that they came into the military uh, with a Judeo-Christian ethic, right? So Bill Rapier is a guy that comes to mind. He's an incredibly devout Christian and he went in there and he obviously knows the difference between killing and murder. And in the Ten Commandments, that's talking about murder, the murder of innocent people, not killing in war. So I guess for you, give me a little bit, you know, we're getting a little personal here from the beginning. Give me a little bit of what I guess your worldview is uh, or was before you got into the military. Did you have a Judeo-Christian ethic? Would you consider yeah. yourself a Christian? Did you hook your ponytail to a tree and pray to the gods of the roots or whatever thing like that? And then, you know, talk about how that affected once you got into things. Because it does, it's weird to people seeing guys high five after they kill a buck, much less a terrorist. Right. No, no. All really, really good questions. Big reveal to the audience and, um, you know, to those listening. Kyle didn't know this prior to the conversation, but um, I had a very, very strong faith. Uh, still do. Uh, I actually went to Bible school and was a missionary for a few years. Okay. And then I was a teaching pastor. <laughs> okay. And, yeah, I definitely and, did not know any of that. So there we go. That's why my I, question sounded so stupid to you, to your ears, <laughs> but go for it. And then I enlisted in the military. Uh, but, you know, everyone doesn't come from the, the journey uh, that I have had or, or many of your listeners have had. But I, I do think what uh, I have personally seen, and this is anecdotal, right, is that, you know, whether it be a, um, you know, a faith-based set of values or just someone that has actually put deliberate thought into their actions, um, I have found that that those who have thought about the situation, um, you know, at nauseum prior to the event actually happening mm -hmm. tend to be uh, better equipped to adjust to the stressors and the emotional um, toll that events like that can possibly have. Now, that might not necessarily be taking another's life in combat. Uh, yeah. That could be losing a teammate. Right. You know, which I, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately experienced on on my rotation, um, you know, and um, and, you know, that can be very difficult unless you uh, have thought through the reasons why and the justification mm -hmm. why. You know, I, I remember watching American Sniper uh, prior to being in the military and um, I'm pretty sure it was prior to the military. Uh, you know, we'll have to Google that and find out. Yeah. But the opening scene where there's this, uh, I believe it's a, a little boy who's going to pick up a rifle. And, and he's having this kind of self-talk. And he's like, don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it. Don't do it. Right. But those types of scenarios are um, uh, happen. And a lot of times people in those situations that haven't thought that through yeah. do something and then they uh, they they're dealt with the aftermath of that, and you know that's that's extremely problematic. You know, I'm grateful for the pipeline that I went through in training because it put us intentionally in very very difficult situations. But not everyone in the military has afforded that. You know, like I signed up to to you know be you know uh, at the tip of the spear. 
Um, you know, and there's others that are further closer to the actual point than I, uh, but you know, I wanted to do those things, but you know, your average person that joins the military because it's a great life opportunity, maybe they want to be a truck driver or something and they get into a situation. One, it's not really, you know, what they signed up to do. They may lack uh, some of that training that, 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 uh, my community gets, and more often than not, they haven't thought through those things. So their transition back into society can be very difficult. It's incredibly rough. And, you know, I've seen that. I saw that in Lawton when people were coming back from war. You see that if you're in these veteran communities where there are a lot of veterans, you see people coming back physically wounded, mentally wounded, their families wounded. I mean, how many guys have you heard about? They go on deployment and they come home and their girl's gone and they took all their stuff. Like, you know, those horror stories are out there. But one thing that you were talking about there that I think is I want to co-sign, make sure that I co-sign for people is like, you have a lot of people out there that are interested, at least in the concept of the sheepdog that we get from Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, but they've never made the decision that a sheepdog would need to pre-decide before going into a kinetic and potentially violent situation. And so that's like when people, you know, they, yeah. they want to conceal carry, but they've never thought through, am I going right. to, am I willing to pull this out and kill somebody with it? So, so I think, um, the probably top 10, um, you know, uh, two most influential books I've had, uh, on life in the military on combat and on killing. And, and I think, you know, uh, Grossman takes people through and forces people to think through those things. You know, I, I had the privilege of reading those during basic training. And I remember actually like writing out essays of these hypothetical situations that I might find myself in. And what's my justification? Like, how do I wake up at, you know, the next day and feel good about myself for, for doing something um, that, uh, that, that it, most people would find to be horrific. And yeah. I, I think it, you, you, you hit it on the nail, right? Like you hit the, the nail right on the head there with that, right? Is, is this mental preparation, you know, a lot of people uh, ascribe and want to, uh, to be a certain thing or do a certain thing without really contemplating the, the second and third order effects and repercussions of that, yeah. you know, and, and, and I just say that that's, that's really what being a powerful person and, and taking radical ownership of your decisions are, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, this idea of like, how did I mess this up? How can I be responsible uh, versus, oh, it's everyone else's fault, not mine. When I think, you know, shout out to Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. I know he's gotten some crap over the years like, ah, oh, this guy never even saw a battle. What does he know about any of this stuff? It's like, well, he didn't choose to serve during the Cold War when we were right. in any kinetic situations. Like, are you really going to give him crap for that? And also, I don't know that I've ever said this on this podcast, but I'll, I'll get right back into the interview. The first, so I interviewed him like probably three years ago on the show. Oh, wow. The, the audio, the only time since 2017 that I've ever done an interview where the audio messed up. Essentially, we could not retrieve the audio and we did like a two and a half hour long interview. So wow. I reach out to him sheepishly like, oh my gosh, I finally got the on combat guy and you know, the audio has gone. Like, and so I was reaching out to say, I'm sorry. His response to me could not have been more uh, empathetic and more like awesome. He said, Kyle, I guess God wasn't satisfied with our first try. So let's do it again. And so wow. like the next day we recorded another two and a half hour long podcast. And I got to say, having been the one of two people on the planet that got to hear both of them, I think it was a little bit better, better. So shout out to Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. Um, so real quick, I know like I could just already hear my audience screaming in my ears. You should have asked them this. So I'm just going to go ahead and ask it. So why did you decide to leave the world of being a professional Christian, right? A professional moral person and then go and, you know, go into the bottom rung of the U.S. military? <laughs> well, I, I, I think it's a great question. I don't think they're mutually exclusive of one another, right? Okay. Like I, I feel like, you know, uh, regardless of what faith you are, I mean, you can, you are able to bring that faith into any sort of domain, right? I mean, I think that's kind of the point, right? Mm -hmm. if, if I'm not mistaken, right? It's like, like, you know, not everyone uh, that's a believer is called to be clergy, you know, regardless of what right. religion you are, you know, we are, we live in the world and in society. And, um, you know, so my faith has been very important to me in my own personal journey, um, but it, it, I wouldn't say it is the, uh, the, the motivating factor to serve this nation. The motivating factor to serve this nation is the strength of this nation, you know, mm -hmm. this republic, this democracy, right? I love this country. I love to be able to put myself um, in harm's way, you know, and I... Uh, for the right to defend people's freedoms, you know, and, and a lot of people, you know, uh, today, um, you know, I think are, 
are very removed from what that was, uh, you know, in culture, say, you know, at the end of World War Two or even in the first couple of years of, of the mm-hmm. GWAT. But, you know, I, I felt a, a, a deep uh, desire, you know, to serve. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, you know, was a little late to bloom, but followed that and, and the rest has been history. Now, it took you a whole 20-something minutes before you started going all military with your acronym. So, guys, GWAT is the Global War on Terror. So, you know, don't sneak in a whole bunch of those, okay? Because most of us can't follow, all right, Daniel? We need you to, you know, we're all dumb over here on this side of the camera. Look, I, I'll break it down for you, Barney style. No worries. I, we're, okay. It's two redheads talking to each other. We got fingers and toes. We'll figure it out. But no souls, and that's just kind of the the end of it. You know, that's us uh, on the ginger side. So we've got to talk about Afghanistan because uh, I know that you just did a hit, and you know, I said in the intro, obviously, like you, you basically, uh, you know, we're able to squeeze this in in between hits on Newsmax because this week is essentially the week. I think it was actually August the fifteenth, and we're recording this on August the sixteenth. August the fifteenth of two thousand and twenty-one was the day that Kabul fell, which essentially was the United States' last day in control of the country of Afghanistan, and it was. It wasn't until the 30th of August of 2021 where, you know, the last boots were no longer on the ground in Afghanistan, as long as I've got my dates correct. So I talked to a lot of people uh, during that week after, right? Whenever it looked like we were going, I knew some people that were on the ground there. Holly McKay, shout out to her. She's a war correspondent. She was on the ground as, you know, basically all these small towns in Afghanistan were falling. It was a very, very sketchy situation. Um, And then I talked to some guys after. I had a lot of people on my show and these were guys that were, you know, retired military, some gold star widows, but almost all these people had a direct connection to Afghanistan. Either they served there and spilled blood there or they lost people there and nobody quite could quite get it. And it hasn't gotten better as time has gone on in terms of our understanding of why we withdrew or why we withdrew so hastily. And I know some people were very, very vehement about getting out of Afghanistan to begin with. But then when they saw how the Biden administration handled that and how the military leadership handled that, again, I can say that you can't. um, They were just appalled at the incredible lack of leadership, lack of fortitude and lack of planning. So you can take this wherever you want to go with it. So let's talk about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Let's talk about where we are here a year later. Well, you know, a year later, uh, you know, in New York today, uh, Fox Business uh, this morning and then uh, Newsmax this afternoon really talking about this issue uh, because it's still very much alive in the hearts of, of many within my community uh, and, and many within the veterans community uh, that served over the last 20 years. But I, I want to kind of dial it back uh, as far as the history is concerned, right? And, 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 you know, obviously the events of last August uh, were horrific, but the journey didn't start there for me, right? You know, the journey started in 2016 and 2017 with an interpreter named Johnny, uh, whom served alongside of, uh, of a special operations uh, unit. And unfortunately, uh, Johnny got shot. And uh, I'll never forget uh, the day that we uh, saved Johnny's life. Uh, I assisted in, uh, in the field surgery. Um, and uh, it, it, it we, we saved his life. And as he got medevaced out, I, I really wondered what would happen to him. Um, and then uh, the amazing thing, and I think this really captures the essence of the Afghan spirit um, and how they serve shoulder to shoulder with us. You know, he came back and wanted to go out and continue being an interpreter, even though he had had a round through his jaw, you know, and yeah. he had multiple surgeries and he ended up going back out uh, with the teams. Right. So when I saw the events uh, unfold last August, you know, I was uh, mortified, but the association had been engaged since January, right? Uh, because one of our main important issues uh, was our SIV allies and getting them out of Afghanistan. So, you know, we started to hear from, you know, people on the ground, that, that's that's our mantra, we, we have the ground truth. We bring the ground truth in a way that no one else can simply because of the people who are our members, you know, have that actual ground truth. And, you know, we were averaging, you know, one, two interpreters or members of the community reaching out to assistance for their interpreters in, in January of, of 2021. By June, it was up to like 10 a day. Mm-hmm. And I was, I, I did a massive press conference. We can link to it in, in the show notes in front of the Capitol, you know, urging the Biden administration to prioritize this because we knew that it was going to be a botched uh, withdrawal. We knew that this was gonna happen. And we prepped, 
You know, so when the fall happened, you know, I hit a a, 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 a a very, very low point. You know, I remember distinctly having a conversation with a few of my buddies who I served with in Afghanistan and, and some of my family. And, and just I, I was I was kind of in peril, uh, but we had planned for this. And so we immediately, you know, stood up. Um, a, a digital effort, you know, and, um, you know, the digital Dunkirk revolution, you know, and, and we, we had the uh, front page of, of the Washington Post, you know, our effort was not as big or as widely publicized as that of uh, other great organizations like, you know, Saver Allies, which Tim Kennedy and Sarah Verado are part of, or even Task Force Pineapple. Uh, but we did move the needle. Um, and uh, we, we helped evacuate nearly 1,500 people uh, out of Kabul. Uh, but what was really unique about, uh, about us and what we did is we also put a team forward on the ground, which I think only one or two other organizations were able to do that. We didn't right. make it to Kabul airport. Um, at the last minute, that fell through. But we ended up in Doha, and we ended up helping um, immensely there through you know, conducting cross-cultural training uh, to uh, the, uh, the, uh, the junior enlisted that were there that were basically on the receiving line, having never gone to Afghanistan and didn't understand the, the dual, duality of, of tribalism and, and how to navigate that. And then we retrograded back to Germany and, and did the same thing there at kind of the, the hub where everyone processed through. And we were able to bring that back to you know, DOD, State Department, members of Congress of like, hey, this is what's going on. You know, like I had members of Congress calling me, you know, asking me for assistance when we were on the ground. And, and that's one of the advantages, I think, of being an organization that uh, is uh, com- compiled of people that have these unique backgrounds and, uh, and, and set of experiences. So that's really what drove us, you know, last August. But it didn't stop then. Right. right. You know, for all of last fall, you know, we ran a network of safe houses. We, you know, uh, clothing, housing, feeding, providing medical aid to uh, some of the, you know, uh, most persecuted or most wanted people by the Taliban. And uh, we partnered with other organizations like Argo and uh, uh, chartered five aircraft and, and were, was able to, you know, uh, evacuate another 5,000 people. So the work is not done, you know, and I'll stop here. I'm ranting a little bit, but, you know, we made a promise to our allies, right? And, you know, I, over my dead body will, will, will this organization stop, you know, trying to, you know, ensure that those promises are kept, you know, and I, I think many people in the veterans community feel that way, which is why we've worked, you know, 20 hours a day, you know, for the last year to do our part. So I'll stop there. No, I appreciate you going into all that detail because I've talked about Afghanistan a lot since last August because you know how it is now. Once it's out of the news cycle, it's out of mind. That's what used to be out of sight, out of mind. And so there's so many other things to be outraged about, regardless of where you are politically or what side of the aisle you like best or if you like blue ties or red ties more. There's always something to be angry about. And so we just kind of forget about Afghanistan. But before we move off of Afghanistan, I have kind of a, a more specific question. I've heard from some people Well, you know what? It's not nearly as bad as we thought it was going to be because the expectation right after, uh, you know, the the pull the full withdrawal of our troops was that they were basically going to be lining up all the dissidents in the street and be executing them there which some of that certainly did happen. I, I heard stories, you know, you and I heard the same stories when we were together in DC from people that we will not name about them, the Taliban, literally executing women and children in front of US soldiers, trying to get the US soldiers to engage and to leave HKIA in order to do so. But there, there is kind of this idea now that, well, I guess Afghanistan is just not really that bad. We, we thought there was gonna be a wide famine. It's more of a minor famine. You know, they lost like 90% of their medical facilities, but you know, not that many people died in the earth quake it's not that big a deal like i'm wondering where this comes from is it if it is it because we don't have to care as much if it doesn't seem no. as bad what do you think well so here's the thing right the, the idea that it's not not as bad as we thought look 13 american service members lost their lives yeah period right that that is that didn't need to happen right why didn't that need to happen and why do i feel like the withdrawal was botched by the Biden administration, right? And I think it's important, right? I want to delineate for the audience, right? Like, I, I, I don't, I, I don't get into the the, the politics of it uh, per se. 
I think one of the things that we learn in the special operations community is is this mantra of always be improving. Uh, but you can't improve anything if you have amnesia about what happened. And you know, when something bad happens, you you know sidestep it and don't address it, right? You, right. you know, if you're going to take credit, take credit, but also be responsible for when you have a misstep. And this was a misstep of biblical proportion, right? Yeah. This withdrawal. You know, regardless of whether you had faith in the Doha agreement or not, and, you know, some people want to argue that, you know, well, Trump put us on this path. Look, four administrations tried to leave Afghanistan and, and they weren't successful doing it. Right. But here's the thing. Right. The withdrawal was coordinated, preplanned and eminent. Right. So for something that is a known action to be conducted by the State Department, right, to go that wrong, like, I, I think we need transparency and accountability on that, right? We need to we need to ask the really tough questions to ensure something like this doesn't happen again, you know? And then there's the emotional toll that it took on our veteran population. I mean, just recently we had, uh, you know, uh, one of the service members that lost their lives Last year, uh, a family member took their own life, right? Like, yeah, you know, at, it's, it's, at a it's, memorial it's, service. Horrible, at, horrible at story. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely insane to think that this didn't have cascading effects, uh, let alone the, to, to not get into the national security, you know, uh, aspect of this. And what does it signify to our allies, right? So, like, uh, was there this massive purge? You know, no. Had... Uh, amazing Americans who I am proud to serve alongside both in and uniform and out not stepped up and filled the gap that was meant to be filled by the federal government. I think we may have had a massive tragedy on our hands, right? Way worse than it was. And, and that's not to discount the, the fact that currently the Taliban regime uses torture and, mm -hmm. you know, and scare tactics uh, and, and, and to hold down a population and, you know, they, uh, you know, force people to, you know, uh, to to model a, a religion uh, because it's it, it's Sharia law. You know, these types of things, I think, are, you know, not uh, the bastion of, of freedom and, you know, and hope. And, you know, that's where we are a year later. So the, there's a lot of stuff there. The thing that I feel like is most important is a lot of folks looked at that situation and they were just shocked and appalled. And I think it started that conversation I was talking about earlier around the dinner table of, you know, patriotic families that maybe don't necessarily want their kids to go into the military anymore because they're like, you know, I don't want my kid to die. That's number one. Number two might be, you know, I don't want them to come back, but then be mentally or physically jacked up. Or I don't trust the leadership right now of all these generals that just continue and colonels that just continue to fail upward. And then whenever they finally decide they want to get out of the military, they get some sort of cush job at, you know, a military contractor or something like that. And they're profiting off of a lot of the decisions that they made that went wrong, you know, two or three years prior. But then you also have some of the wokeness in the military stuff. I've had people reach out to me directly saying, hey, you know, my unit is telling me I have to put my pronouns in my in my my email signature now and they're doing you know enforce diversity equity and inclusion training and it's like wait a minute are we not supposed to be training on being as lethal as possible? Why are we sitting here? And then again, we're, we're missing our recruiting goals because all those flyover people that nobody on either coast cares about, those are the people that loved going in the military because of what it stood for as you know, being a patriotic American and serving your country. But then when they see a commercial of like, okay, here's my two mommies and that's why I'm joining the military. It's like a lot of those kids, a lot of those corn fed kids don't want to be a part of something like that. So talk to me a little bit about just overall the state of the military. Cause to be honest, I'm so saddened when I talk to some of my, my favorite guys, some of my good friends, some of my heroes that serve this country for 20 years. And they're like, bro, if I had to enter, you know, go through buds today or go through the Q course today, I wouldn't do it. Cause I wouldn't even be in the military. I'm not dealing with this crap. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you definitely laid out a, uh, a, a myriad of issues that, uh, and we could, you know, spend, uh, a lot of time talking about, you know, any one of them. But but the one that sticks out to me the most is this this, you know, increase in, uh, you know, uh, politicizing veterans uh, for for individual or party gain. Right. Mm -hmm. And and that's something that like, you know, we 
we as an association, you know, we understand that we represent the interests of the special operations community. So, you know, sometimes that pushes us left, sometimes that pushes us right, right? What we steward is, you know, the ethical uh, and, and moral weight of doing our due diligence to represent the community. And the thing that I have seen in recent years, which I think contributes to recruiting, um, you know, but it, it also is more of social commentary on where we are as a society is, you know, the, uh, the use of veterans as political bargaining chips yeah. uh, to get elected, right? And we saw that recently, last week, in the two previous weeks with the PACT Act, Right. This is our generation's Agent Orange. It is the most monumental, uh, you know, piece of veterans legislation that has been passed, um, you know, in a long time. Right. And we saw the bill get passed by the Senate with no issues. There was a technicality in the bill and it had to go back to another vote. And then we saw, I think it was like 26 um, that flip flop. <coughs> Why the flip flop? Right. You know, and I'm not here to point fingers at uh, Republicans, uh, just like I'm not here to point fingers at at Democrats. I'm here to say, look, Biden botched the withdrawal. We need to hold people accountable so this doesn't happen again. But we also have examples of, you know, Republicans using veterans as a means to an end because they didn't want to give the Democrats a win because we're going into an election cycle. Right. So, you know, I am doing uh, my part to continue to hold that line, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, in, in the same way that um, there are, you know, protected classes, I believe that the veteran uh, is, is, is someone that should, uh, should not be used in, uh, as a political negotiation uh, chip uh, to, uh, to do anything. And, and that's the thing that really pisses me off. Well, so that's a great time to go ahead and get into the discussion of SOAA. So that's Special Operations Association of America. You are the co-founder of that organization. So I want to spend some time because you all have a very interesting issues section of your website. So I want to talk about operator syndrome, our interpreter allies, burn pits, eligibility for benefits, and then ROEs or rules of engagement. Here I am using acronyms now, but like <laughs> I, I just give us an idea as to where the idea for SOAA came from and why you started it and kind of what it's morphed into today. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, being in the National Guard, I've had a civilian career and that civilian career has always been in veteran advocacy. So I started with the BFW, you know, worked my way up, worked for Veterans Education Success. Then I became a legislative director for the Enlisted Association and then an executive director for the Veterans Education Project. And, you know, the whole time I kind of was matriculating through uh, the pipeline for SF and, you know, kind of started to get my, uh, my grounding, you know, as a as a junior member on a team, um, and I'm, I start looking around in, in D.C. and I see all these veterans groups that have significant amounts of power. I mean, we're talking about the VFW and the American Legion. Every year, they get their own hearing. Every year, yeah. their own hearing to present their top five or ten priorities to the full committee. Right? That is a, a lot of influence, and I'm not saying that it's unwarranted. What I am saying is, is that I recognize that level of influence. And then I realized that no one was advocating on behalf of, you know, the men and women that are part of the special operations community. And when I really looked at it, you know, uh, we collectively uh, had the preponderance of effort since 2014 onward. Right. You know, and moving forward, it's pretty much just the special operations community that is is being utilized. You know, obviously, you know, the 82nd, 101st gets deployed in certain areas, maybe peacekeeping missions or, you know, obviously Ukraine is is a thing. But when it comes to actual uh, people being in combat, you know, it's asymmetric, irregular and unconventional warfare. And I just saw this huge gap. So I went around to these big associations, VFW, the American Legion, the Wounded Warrior Project. And I and I, 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 I met with their leadership and asked if they would start something. In their in in their association to uh, to 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 advocate on behalf of, of this segment of the community, um, and they all said the same thing: we we've tried, it doesn't work. Hmm. I was like, huh? Well, why is that? And um, uh, the executive director of American Legion, he said it best. He said, you know, it's all about being authentic. He's like, Daniel, you know, you're a combat uh, veteran, you know, from the special operations community. If uh, a, a uh, an airman from uh, you know 
who had spent his career in Minot, North Dakota, as like a ham radio operator, came into your office to try and talk to you about something that CAG or Dev or, you know, uh, you know, 175 did, you know, how would you take that person? And I like, I probably would tell them to get out of my office. They don't know what they're talking about. And he basically was like, exactly. And that's why it needs to be uh, uh, started uh, and founded by people from the community on behalf of the community. So, you know, I kind of took that guidance. Uh, we ended up meeting with a, a lot of uh, large nonprofits around the United States, like SEAL Foundation, Green Beret Foundation, Special Forces Association, you know, Latrell, Chris Kyle, Marsock Foundation. And what we realized is all these groups are doing great things for their specific tribes, but it's all downstream of the issue. It's like benefits, ride-a-thon, scholarships, you know, uh, transition, honor the fallen, retreats, you know, um, <coughs> so on and so forth. But no one was based inside D.C. No one was going to Capitol Hill to talk about, you know, relevant issues. No one was engaging in national security in the way that we we are. So that's really where SOA was born. And, and, and you know, as SOA has kind of grown, you know, there's four legs to the table. The first one's advocacy. And a lot of people, that's really easy to understand. You know, that's what we do. Uh, we learn and hear what's going right, what's going wrong, what needs to change. And we make recommendations and we advocate on behalf of, of, of our members. The second thing is, is a little bit unique to our association. And that is, is national security uh, policy, right? So we have the unique ability of, uh, you know, possessing security clearances. You know, people who have just transitioned out of the military, their clearance is still active. They have subject matter expertise in an area, you know, and, and we can afford them connection to actually be able to inform, you know, politicians or stakeholders in the administration or even DOD uh, to help them make better informed decisions, right? Uh, and then an another thing that we've been working on, a third leg of the table, is this thing called the military-civilian divide, right? Mm. Uh, it's really hard for people to understand what, you know, someone in the military does. It's even harder for someone to understand what members of the special operations community do. So, sure. you know, we are uh, continuing to partner with uh, the various special operations commands, right, to amplify recruiting efforts, to highlight great stories of the brave men and women of this community on and off the battlefield, in and out of uniform, to showcase the amazing skill set that, uh, you know, we bring to the table after the rigorous training and selection pipelines that we go through. And then the last, the last piece, the last leg of the table is our overseas allies, right? You know, we understand that, you know, the idea of America and our, the war fighters on the ground can't do it without overseas allies, right? So, you know, Afghan, Afghanistan is one of, uh, uh, of those examples, but Ukraine is also another one. You know, I spent, you know, uh, April and May in Ukraine and develop, de, 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 uh, delivering humanitarian aid. And, you know, and we're in the process now of working with the Ukrainian government uh, to bring trainers over to help train their forces to better be equipped to combat, you know, Russian aggression. Right. And we're coordinating with DOD and the State Department, you know, with all of our proper certifications. You know, I, I don't know how many nonprofits in the United States, you know, have a uh, ITAR certification, but, uh, you know, it's a very unique position to be in because we have this unique skill set that we can bring to bear. So that's kind of, you know, where SOA came from and, and some of the stuff we're involved in. Excellent. Well, let's go ahead and dig into some of the issues. And you, you talked about one of them there with our interpreter allies. So I feel like we, we've covered a little bit of that. But there are some other things that most civilians are just simply not aware of. And so, guys, this comes directly from the issues section on their website. Their website will be in the show notes, so you can check that out for yourself. But the first one is operator syndrome. So give us an idea of what that is and what you guys are, are doing in order to kind of counteract that. Yeah, yeah. And this is like what I consider to be our, our top, one of our top priorities, right? So operator syndrome is, uh, you know, the easiest way for, you know, your the audience to understand is like concussion syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, think NFL, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the famous movie that uh, I think, uh, I don't know if it was Will Smith. It was, was Will Smith. I think it was called concussion. Yeah. Concussion. Yeah. So uh, I forgot because I've had too many. Um, yeah. So, so, uh, so not everyone has a TBI, right? An acute blast are a concussive, major concussive event. You know, many in the military have those. But what operator syndrome is, is, is it's these micro blasts or micro concussions that happen from just the normal wear and tear 
of the heads knocking. And how does that manifest in the special operations community? Well, you know, all the ammunition we shoot, the, the interior breaching, you know, the explosions, um, the mortars, you know, artillery fire, you know, being on helicopters, you know, the, all the, the, uh, uh, the airborne operations that we do and, and hitting the ground hard sometimes, you know, combative training and all of that kind of cascades, you know, and when you look at a brain scan, you, you can see this, right? But what does that do, right? Uh, and this is where it kind of, I get out of, uh, out, out of my expertise. So I, uh, I'm not a doctor, don't play one on TV. So if anyone listening is like, that's wrong, uh, it's just because I'm missing, you know, some of the important uh, uh, tidbits uh, because I'm not a clinician. But, you know, uh, what that does in the human body, uh, what we see is, is below the neck, we see endocrine uh, suppression, right? So essentially your hormones get out of whack, right? So you have it. And what's interesting is, is whether it's actual physical trauma to the brain or mental trauma to the brain, it has the same type of effects and it creates a inflamed state in the brain. And when neural inflammation occurs, the endocrine system becomes dysregulated, right? You know, testosterone levels get suppressed, cortisol levels go up, you see deficiencies in other areas and you see a neuroinflammation biomarkers in the body. And what we have seen and what we're actively pursuing is uh, alternative treatments to TBI and PTSD, specifically through treating neuroinflammation, right? Not SSRIs, not a bag of pills. You know, I, I think the record is, is like 24. There, there was a SEAL who we were engaged with that had 24 prescription medications from the VA. It literally wow. was a bag of pills they took every day, right? And, you know, uh, so that hasn't been working, clearly, because we still have this suicide pandemic of 17 to 22 a day, right? That's twice as many people every year as died in the World Trade Centers, right? So, you know, when you look at them at, at, at the current treatments, right, we have to start to ask questions, well, what is uh, what's not working and should we try some alternatives, right? And, and this idea of operator syndrome and treating the endocrine system to bring the body into a state of homeostasis and reduce neuroinflammation, you know, we're seeing great effects. So work of the Warrior Angel Foundation, Dr. Gordon and the Millennial Foundation, um, they have an amazing documentary, uh, which I can't remember now, uh, uh, but we'll link to that in the show notes, right? Uh, um, uh, and we sponsor people and put them through their neuroinflammation protocol. And we've seen high levels of efficacy uh, for, for, for people who uh, have, have gone through that. But the other thing that I think your audience is going to really uh, kind of be blown away by, right? especially those that have a more evangelical traditional background, is psychedelics, right? Psychedelics magical mushrooms, right? So we are seeing um, anecdotal evidence because we can't study it in a double blind study because of how it's regulated, but we're seeing families be restored. We're seeing people who are on the verge of being chaptered out of the US military, you know, going on trips down south, going to Mexico, going to Peru, and uh, doing one of uh, three or four psychedelic treatments and, uh, and, and it, it's, it's kind of like doing 10 to 15 years of therapy in a weekend. Um, and it, it's not, it's not done in a party sense. You know, there's a doctor, uh, or a, uh, a professional that, that guides you through what you're experiencing. Um, but, uh, the preliminary research from other countries shows that it has the ability to unlock certain, you know, neuropathways or increase what's called neuroplasticity, which really helps people develop new pathways in their brain around certain trauma and they come back new people. So, so what we're doing on that issue to combat operator syndrome, which is kind of the name is to pursue alternative treatments, right? Through the VA and DOD and, and kind of bring into, uh, you know, uh, you know, the medical, uh, uh, literature, uh, the efficacy of these treatments through, uh, through studying, because we believe that, uh, you know, we've tried a lot of different avenues and we haven't seen the needle move and, you know, we're seeing this work. So we want to look into it more. 
Well, I appreciate all the detail on that because, and there's so much more that we can get into. I mean, we literally could have did the, uh, we could have done the entire podcast today just on operator syndrome because obviously, you know, one of my good buddies was a breacher and like, you know, the stuff that he was able to do just in the experimentation phase of trying to figure out how to do certain things in certain areas, you're constantly getting those little mini blasts, little mini blasts, little yeah. mini bat blasts. And that's has a, a very deleterious effect over time. Let's go ahead and talk about burn pits because that was something that came up over the last couple of weeks that some people yeah. were maybe hearing about for the first time. Um, yeah. But you know, what's the deal with burn pits and what are you guys doing? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, burn picks, easy, easy kind of uh, way to explain it is, you know, uh, when we were deployed in Afghanistan and I in Iraq, there wasn't a trash service and Americans produce a lot of trash and just throwing it out on the local economy, um, you know, uh, sometimes equips uh, the enemy, um, you know, with uh, bomb making material um, and uh, the uh, ability to use that trash against us um, later down the road. So uh, we started to incinerate that trash by burning it. Um, and obviously uh, that released extreme amounts of particulate matter, carcinogens, um, you know, and uh, uh, other toxins into the air, which people breathed, right? And what we started to see over the last several years is an increase in, uh, in, in cancer and specifically rare cancer. And what's interesting is within the special operations community, the cancer rate is sometimes uh, 300% higher than the rest of the military, or the general population. And that's because of all of the places that we go um, and the toxins that we're exposed to are, are typically uh, at greater levels or more frequent duration than uh, someone who is just, you know, uh, someone in the 82nd or, or someone who's, you know, in a uh, in an armor unit. Right. And uh, and the last several years, the collective veteran community has been trying to get these conditions uh, these respiratory issues, these rare diseases that are associated with burn pit inhalation um, as, uh, you know, service connected for VA disability and VA treatment, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so what we saw over the last couple weeks, several weeks was, you know, a culmination of, of, of really three or four years of collective effort uh, by many organizations, including SOA, the Special Operations Association of America, to get this passed across the goal line, you know, like I wake up every day and I have a persistent cough and it really, really sucked <laughs> during COVID because everyone thought <laughs> that I had COVID yeah. all of the time. You know, I always cough, you know, and um, that's the re result of, of burn pit inhalation and, and, and breathing bad air in various regions around the world. And I've been to the doctors and, uh, you know, lungs are clear right now, but you know, don't know what, what, what's down the road, 10, 15, 20 years from now, you know, so we saw this massive passage. I think it's a great win for our generation of service members. And now we go through the implementation process, which has its own set of issues. So that's a little bit of a background about burn pits and, and what we've been up to and how we've been engaging. Well, I appreciate that. So um, you talked a little bit about eligibility of benefits, and I feel like for the most part, uh, a lot of people are at least somewhat familiar, at least vaguely familiar with the eligibility of benefits. But if you talk to anybody that was in a combat role at any point over the last couple of decades, ROE's rules of engagement was a major, major issue. And a lot of guys like, it doesn't make sense to a civilian. It's like, wait a minute. So you had to wait until you could confirm that you were being shot at by an enemy combat before you could do anything. And now that's kind of the main example. And that's not always necessarily true, depending upon your situation, certainly. But give us a little bit of a better idea of what y'all are trying to do in terms of ROEs, because I do know that is a major point of frustration for a lot of you know people in the special operations community. So like, and, and this is a multifaceted issue, right? And, and I think restrictive ROEs come down to accountability and oversight of the individuals engaged in combat, right? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, but we're of the mindset that, you know, you've invested millions of dollars into each individual in a special operations community, right? You entrust them to, you know, uh, steward, you know, $50 million of equipment. You entrust them with national secrets, sometimes at the strategic level, um, you know, to negotiate on behalf of the U.S. government in some cases, you know, um, and then you can't trust them to make good decisions in combat, right? And, you know, that's a, 
a very black and white way of, of, of discussing the matter. But really what it came down to is me, when I was deployed in 16 to 17, I had the unique opportunity. It was my first SF combat deployment and my only one thus far, um, where I, I had the first three or four months, uh, it was the end of the uh, Obama administration. And the last three to four months were the beginning of the Trump administration. And I watched the pendulum swing so vastly that I had to step back and say, I get different ways of, you know, the uh, the commander in chief, you know, uh, waging, you know, our counterterrorism strategy. But this this literally affected the ability for the team to be safe on the ground. Right. And it's not just as cut and dry as, oh, well, you know, uh, we have to be shot at before we can return fire. You know, it's it's kind of like identifying hostile intent, right? Like, so imagine observing, you know, four military-aged males in the middle of the night burying a round cylindrical object in the middle of a road in a known Taliban area, right? And not being able to do anything about it, even though you have legitimate intel uh, there that you, you've, uh, positively ID'd weapons, you know, and, you know, and, and, and not being able to execute against that. Right. So mm-hmm. I think we have to have a conversation, you know, cause I think a lot of our politicians don't know what the ground truth is. Right. Another really interesting example of this is the rules of engagement for named operations. You have, you know, noble Eagle and enduring freedom. You have partnered with NATO and partnered uh, with non-NATO forces in each of those named operations had different force protection requirements. So what does that mean, right? That means that in one of them, when U.S. forces went out with their Afghan counterparts and their Afghan counterparts uh, received contact by the enemy, uh, uh, Americans were allowed to return fire because right. it, we were one in the same, right? Um, and that builds that camaraderie and that trust. Then all of a sudden, we go out on a NATO mission with NATO allies right. and that changes. So the Taliban is, is they're smart, right? They recognize that. So then they, they send harassing fires or they'll set up an ambush for just the Afghans. And then that call for help comes right from, you know, someone who you possibly uh, had done a mission the day before with under a different named operation mm-hmm. and they're calling for help. And you sit by and do nothing because you are not allowed to because your ROE restricts you from doing so. And what does that do to that person? Let's say he watches his brother die, you know, um, or he gets wounded. You know, there's a high potential in a situation like that to, you know, make an enemy combatant of that person right away. And 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 it's unfortunate, but in some cases, that's how some, uh, you know, you know, force on force or blue on green events have happened, right? And a lot of people don't know that. And that's one of the reasons why we want to continue to bring the ground truth, because, you know, that doesn't always matriculate down to, you know, the policymakers and the decision makers, uh, you know, uh, by the U.S. government or by the media. So Mm -hmm. it's our job to make sure that that happens. Well, I'm so glad you're covering all the ground that you're doing with Special Operations Association of America. Like, I, I absolutely love the stuff that you're doing, at least just from even just researching before we got into this. You know, I knew some of this stuff, but I didn't know all the details. And so you never want to be the guy that's out there spouting information that's not exactly accurate. How can our audience help support SOAA? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, right now we are fundraising around uh, two uh, main areas. You know, so go to the website, www.soaa dot org or soa.org there's a donate button there you know um you know we take crypto if any of your audience wants to donate crypto um you know uh we very much you know appreciate you know any effort um we're currently trying to fundraise to put a team into ukraine to conduct this 30-day training operation um and we're currently fundraising around uh the ability to put more people through this neuroinflammation protocol and, and get them the help that they need so you know uh, feel free to reach us, reach out to us at uh, contact us, you know, uh, click on our website and, you know, just shoot us an email. And uh, yeah, we appreciate any uh, any effort that uh, our donation you give. It's tax deductible. Awesome, man. Well, that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? 
No, man, it's been a, it's been a, a, a pleasure and look forward to doing this again. Daniel Elkins, thank you for coming on on Daunted Life, a man's podcast. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Daniel Elkins. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got a link to the SOA website. So that is SOAA.org. I've also got a link to the, uh, the it was the thing he was talking about earlier in the show where it was calling on President Biden to take immediate action on immigrant visas. So that was a press conference that he did. And, you know, we're still kind of working through some of the stuff. So there may be some more links in here that I haven't had uh, time to really get through. So they will be listed there for your pleasure as well. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this. Please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album, Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>